Well, here we are in week four of the life of King David. Now this is the center, sort of the centerpiece of David's life. It's the whole Bathsheba week. <clears throat> and, uh, but before we get to the Bathsheba problem, um, we're in 2 Samuel 7. The, it, in Chronicles, you're in dealing with Chronicles 17 and following. Uh, there's not a whole lot of difference. The Bathsheba story isn't addressed in Chronicles. Um, it's inter the, 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 the circumstances introduced, the particular war that it happens during, but, but uh, not the actual story. Um, but here initially in first, 2 Samuel 7, is uh, David has gone through uh, a number of military victories, uh, getting himself established in Jerusalem finally. Uh, remember, he had reigned seven years in Hebron um, when he was about 30 years old. So at about 37, he comes to rule and conquers Jebus. It becomes Jerusalem. And, um, uh, and the, this is the sort of uh, beginning of his reign proper, or what you would think of as the, the uh, centerpiece of his reign. Now, he has just at the end of last week also tried to bring the Ark of the Lord out of when he'd been in Philistia and had ended up in various places, he finally brings it back. But at the same time, there isn't a temple. Now when the king dwelt in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies round about, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David. <coughs> Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I have commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Uh, something to notice in that. Be, obviously, God is going, um, this isn't the best idea you've had, or this isn't the idea that you should be having. And it's, would you build me a house to dwell in? And I brought up the people of Israel. Now, other gods, they would bring the God, the, the people of Israel brought me up out of, uh, because other gods were possessed by the people. There's a, a, various stories out of Mesopotamia where various invaders would come and they'd steal the god of one people and take them back to hit the Hittite kingdom and then the god would have to be rescued from the, the god was a possession of the people and the god was um, transported by the people here god is saying i brought you i have been moving around in a tent of meeting um it's just a, a slight flip of what um some might expect with ancient gods Therefore you shall say thus to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. 
from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, I, I bolded, I took you, that you, I have been with you, I will make you. Um, sometimes, if, the, if, if there was a lesson in this moment that we're supposed to take away, I don't, I don't want to presume that, but this, this is what is occurring to David, is he has a nice and pious and giving idea toward God. I want to build God a house, um, uh, a temple, is, is precisely that. A church is not a temple. A, house, a temple is the house of the God. That's what a, a temple means. And, and so, although they didn't think, like any of the pagan gods, that the, the God was confined to the temple, uh, there was the uh, a point of reference, and they, they would, uh, the priests in whatever religion, would visit the God in their temple, be it to Artemis or, <coughs> or Baal. We know from later, when Paul speaks to the uh, pagans in Athens, that God does not dwell in shrines made by man. Yeah, that's not that's not how God works. God is not only not needing this, <coughs> though it's, uh, and also we learn from the New Testament that all these things, be it the tabernacle or later Solomon's temple or or uh, Ezra's temple, these are all shadows of a thing. They are not the actual temple and dwelling place of God. It is um, a, a metaphor for something. But God is, is holding David off, and both Nathan and David thought, well, here's a good idea. I'll do this for the Lord. And we can't always think that a pious and generous idea that we're willing to do is by necessity a good idea or the right idea or the idea that time has come just because we thought of doing it for Jesus. Um, God is more about here is he's, he falls back and says uh, uh, I have been doing things for you I have been making you and he turns the whole thing around in the next sentence moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house the Lord takes on this idea. David already dwells in a house of cedar. He wants to make the Lord a house. He feels that the Lord is being given second-rate standing to the king, and he wants to pious that up a bit. And the Lord still comes back and says, I'm going to make you a house. Much like Abigail said when she was considering David, that he, the Lord would make him a sure house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And you'll notice the familiarity here. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. It's quoted in Hebrews in reference to Christ. So some of this hangs on, you might say, Solomon, because he's basically saying, your son, one who will come after you, will build me a house. That's fine. And in the metaphor sense, Solomon does. In the actual sense, Christ is. You know, he is, he is the sure house of David. We talked about it when, when Abigail had made that comment about the sure house of David. That that comes on to us back when you get down to Gabriel, given the Annunciation, 
to Mary, she was of the house of David. And a kingdom would come of Christ that would um, be forever. But because when you get into situations like this where there is an immediate, I, I guess they call it typology, um, there's an immediate fulfillment, be it the children of Isaiah where Malashat or Hashbaz or Emmanuel, these were prophetic children of Isaiah that uh, were immediate prophecies, but there were elements of the prophetic thing regarding Emmanuel that pointed to Christ, not the immediate child of Isaiah. Um, so you have, though you, but you're not always sure, uh, without the apostolic um, insight, to go back and do this yourself. It's not something you, that we know the rules of how you break it apart. Because the next line is, when he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. Now, if that is speaking of the Christ, we know that he didn't sin at all, but he becomes sin and is chastened. He bears the iniquity of us all. Uh, by his stripes we have been healed. All that, it does apply to Christ. So you're, 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 you're getting both what it's pointing at in the um, ambiguous nature of the oracle, um, and uh, you're getting some of what Solomon is and some of what... Christ the Lord is. If you want to take take some time, and your Psalm eighty nine is a poetic uh, one of the psalmists, not David, but is writing about this covenant to David, and he <coughs> fleshes it out a bit more in a poetic rendering. Take some time and read through it. We don't have the time tonight, but it it, it pulls out the uh, um, the points of this and speaks them in a, with a different in a different way, and it may be beneficial to read. But I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with these words, in accordance with all of this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So he's just been forbidden to build the house of the Lord. We know later that he is also told that it has to do with who he is as a, as a bloody man, a violent man. Um, and uh, but you also know that the throne of David as a regnal line doesn't last that long. You know, it, you get down through a few hundred years, and then there's no more heirs to the throne. There's no more throne. There's no more kingdom. There's uh, the tributary state under the Babylonians, and then the Persians, um, then the Greeks. Uh, and then the Romans, and you really only have a few glitches of perhaps uh, potential kings in the Hasmoneans uh, in the 160s BC. But you don't have the line of David ruling forever, amen, let alone today. So, without the typology, without the, the redirect, when it tells us in places about Abraham's seed, using the singular, not plural, that it's speaking of one, that is the Christ, there are, you might say this, ambiguous nature when heard, but not ambiguous nature when it's fulfilled. It, it becomes clear to the people for whom, it was, for whom it was written. So you do know that the throne of David, or the line of David, is kept, 
it is used literally, genetically, physically, materially to produce the Messiah and the throne that he then takes, which rules all things, um, is the throne of David. David, on the other hand, is stunned. He says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house, that thou hast brought me thus far? This is a, this is a, a great moment of praise. I, I bolded and readed, O Lord God, O Lord God, O Lord God, O Lord God. It's an unusual condition you know, moment where he keeps on um, uh, very specifically and um, directly engaging with this. I like the fact he went in and sat before the Lord. You know, it's, rather than, you know, it's, it's just, just that the position is different than what you expect. <coughs> You're grabbing the horns of the altar, prostrating yourself, making supplication. It's, it's almost like he is... Uh, it's not casual, but it's, but it is. Um, um, it's like he's a servant rather than. Um, uh, I don't want to put too much in it, but I noticed it that it said he sat before the Lord uh, rather than you know, wet before the Lord or, or cast himself down before the Lord. But he 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 um, he's he's amazed at this good thing. I mean, kings. In, in antiquity, and especially biblical antiquity, you notice that your generations, the promise to Abraham being uh, the great promise that is salvific for Abraham, is you should be the father of multitudes. That was why his name changes to Abraham from Abram, the promise to him to be a father of many when he was barren, when his wife was barren. It was the, 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 uh, the, uh, Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, because she was barren, was just weeping before the Lord until they thought she was drunk because she wanted to participate. You see the wives of Jacob fighting over who gets Jacob for the night so they can get preggers to be a part of the line. Being part of the house or the people that develop is a really key, really key idea. Um, why Jonathan with David wants David to promise that you wouldn't let the line of Saul pass away, that, that you would protect the line of Saul. So this is, this is like heroin for, a, for an ancient mind, this kind of promise that God would step in, the Lord God, Yahweh. And it's the Lord Yahweh, not the Lord God. It's the Lord and a particular name for God here. The all caps is, is the, the, the tetragrammaton, um, meaning the four letters of the name of God. Four is it? Four? Four. And so he's being very specific about which God, and he is realizing that it's for many days to come. You have shown me future generations. It's not merely just his son who will build the temple, the metaphorical thing of God here on earth that the, the true and heavenly temple is represented by, but uh, many generations. And what more can David say to thee? Verse 20, for thou knowest thy servant, O Lord God. Because of thy promise, and according to thy own heart, thou hast wrought all this greatness to make thy servant know it. The, the, the degree of, um, you might say, the, the, the wonder of, David has been inquiring of the Lord through earlier chapters, when he wanted to know what to do here, what to do there. And David inquired of the Lord, and he would 
he would get these brief answers. This is a message through the prophet, very specifically, of what God would do for David, very specifically. David is stunned by this point of intimacy with God. And, and you'll know this when he, well, some of his Psalms, 139, about God's knowledge of him, um, how much he is, um, how much he is known by God. Therefore, th- therefore thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like thee, and there is no God besides thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. Um, he goes back and looks at some of the things that God had done for the people of Israel. And he gets to verse 25 and he says, O Lord God, confirm forever the word which thou hast spoken concerning thy servant and concerning his house, and do as thou hast spoken, and thy name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel. And the house of thy servant David will be established before thee. For thou, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, has made this revelation to thy servant, saying, I will build you a house. And I like this next line. Therefore, thy servant has found courage to pray this prayer to thee. When, when you have, when you cross over into a, I don't want to use the word intimate like it's an intimate friendship, but it's intimate and personal, and you know what you've received from the Lord and the greatness of it. We as Christians may not have Nathan the prophet telling us what's going to happen to our family or our business over the next few generations, and we might not value that that much because we're not. This is the great, the the great answer for a petty king in antiquity. David is not one of the really big kings of the moment. But he said that he's going to be made among the great, right? Back in, um, I, um, back in verse 9, like name of the great ones of the earth, I will make you a great man. Here we are, 3,000 years later, studying the life of King David, because David's name is great in the earth. Um, and his courage to pray this prayer... It's the difference, I like to th- always think of you know, my more, more personal uh, events, like when Grandma gives you socks at, wet at, at, at Christmas, and you don't feel that, um, 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 you really wanted socks. But there's a real big difference when you get the kids, or the kids are given something they really couldn't imagine the new PlayStation, the new whatever. They didn't think their folks could afford it. They didn't think Grandma would think of it. And they are given something that they just can't. All of a sudden, you don't have to prompt little Johnny to say thank you. They're beside themselves with gratified, thrilled praise of their grandmother, praise of whoever gave it to them. Acknowledgement, knowing what God has done for us. I like to think in terms of uh, we still often think we're here to do something for God. But God has made us and has graced us and has presented blessings. His benevolence is in the earth to benefit us. Not, he doesn't need anything. He is not, a, you know, that, that be served by human hands. That's what he says in Acts 17. He's, he's not a God that is served by human hands. We cannot bring him anything that he needs. But he is there bringing us countless times and again and again the things we need. And when we finally recognize, when we finally value, say, the forgiveness of sins and life eternal and all the things of the grace and the peace and the joy um, that you have in the Christian life, 
your courage to pray this way, your courage to praise God this way, is more pronounced. It's sort of a um, sort of a test of whether or not you saw it, whether you felt it. You could admit it on a test on your catechism. You could admit it on a test of, of your doctrines. Do you believe God does good to man? Yes, I believe that. Do you believe it a lot? Yes, I believe it a lot. You know you believe it a lot. Is it like you being twisted, your arm being twisted by your parents to say, thank you to Grandma for the socks because you knew you need them and it was nice of her to get them. Do you treat the gifts of God that way or are you like getting the new PlayStation where you cannot restrain yourself to say great Thanksgiving and I want, you know, David gets something, I want to confirm this with you. He goes back over, confirm forever the word which thou hast spoken. You know, get, get, let's make sure that uh, this is really true. Did I really win the lottery on this one? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a satisfying. When we're satisfied by, um, when um, we're satisfied by the gifts of God, we have the right sort of reaction. Uh, oftentimes, we get things from God, and we we don't notice. Uh, and we could get busy being pious and helpful to him and his purposes and building him temples and the like. When you step into chapter 8, there's only one verse of chapter 8 I have here, verse 2. Um, it's, in, it's in the midst of a bunch of military conquests. He defeats the Philistines in verse 1, Moab in verse 2, Hadad Rezer of Zobah in verses 3 through 18 through the end of the chapter, uh, also with the Syrians. I left the one on Moab here because there is a degree of violence here that a lot of people miss this is it's only one verse. He defeated Moab and measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. He just lay all the soldiers out in three lines, killed two of the lines, and left one. That's a, a massive slaughter of just, of you might say, did not follow the Geneva Code about rules for war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he decimated. It's not, not decimated because we use it. But the way we use it, decimation was this every ten, one in ten. Uh, with the Romans instigated that where a mutinous uh, legion or something, they would line them up and they'd count off every tenth man and kill every tenth man um, uh, to punish the legion. But uh, that's where we get decimate. Uh, but we now use it more like this, where it's decimating the opposition army of Moab by two-thirds. And we don't know the numbers, but they now pay tribute to David. Well, Hadad Rezer um, of Zobah and Syria. Hey, uh, Zobah is, if you go up uh, through Lebanon uh, into Syria, Damascus of Syria is just north. It's not, a, uh, it's not far enough on your map to get up as high as Damascus. North of Damascus in Syria is Zobah. And uh, uh, so you had uh, this king uh, attacks David. David defeats them, and the ruler of Hamath, and Hamath is even further north, up where your Antioch eventually would be, up on the Orontes River, up in uh, northern, the northern Levant, northern Syria. In chapter 9, uh, one, uh, one verse from that, and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? That's out of the First Samuel 20, where he and Jonathan have this covenant with each other, and they, um, uh, and and 
the Lord would be between them. And uh, Jonathan in another place had asked them to uh, uh, care for his family. And so he's carrying that out. Well, we got that little introduction a couple weeks ago of Mephibosheth at five years old being rescued from uh, a slaughter and uh, 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 and the nurse was running with him and dropped him and broke his ankles and his feet never healed up. So he's now, you know, maybe 20 years old or, or something like that, but he's crippled. And uh, the only thing that's in chapter 9 is not a very uh, applicable passage. It just lets you know that Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is being cared for by David. He eats at David's table every every day, and David assigns Ziba, uh, an old servant of Saul, and his family to watch over the estates from Mephibosheth. That comes in later, because Ziba ends up going bad and, and ratting out Mephibosheth in a bad way. So, um, uh, But that was all chapter 9 was about. Chapter 10... Uh, leads us into the rest of the section. Chapter 10, there's a circumstance with Ammon. Now, in your, um, in your mental map or on your maps, on the eastern side of the Jordan, uh, eastern side of the Dead Sea is Moab. Uh, on the eastern side of the Jordan, north of Moab, is Ammon. Those are the two sons of Lot via his two daughters. After the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the two daughters of Lot slept with their dad, got pregnant by him. The two nations that came out were Moab and Ammon. Not always the best relationship with the descendants of Abraham, uh, but uh, now they're big nations. David has good, had had good relations with the king of Ammon, who dies here in verse 1. Hanun, his son, raised in his stead, reigned in his stead. David said, I will deal loyally with Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent his servants to console him concerning his father. David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanun their lord, Do you think, because David has sent comforters to you, that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out, and overthrow it? So Hanun took David's servants, shaved off half the beard of each, and cut off their garments in the middle, at their hips, and sent them away. I don't know if that meant they were naked you know, bottom naked, bottom down, and half a beard, which is like those Amish guys that went around cutting off the beards of people, I think were a few months ago on Drudge, kind of a wild Amish gang, um, humiliated these guys, basically, humiliated them. Um, it wasn't really bad advice. Later on in, in Israelite history, Hezekiah the king, when he gets a get-well visit from Merodach Baladin, king of Babylon, and he shows the ambassadors everything in his house and all of his treasures, Isaiah the prophet comes in and says, you idiot, what are you doing? And it was true, he let the Babylonians know how much gold and loot was in Jerusalem, considerable, and they come and get it later. So uh, it, it was not, it's not bad advice, it just tragically isn't true, and he humiliates the ambassadors, and it was told to David, and he sent to meet them, for the men were greatly ashamed. And the king said, remain at Jericho um, until your beards have grown and then return. Basically, war with Ammon and Syria breaks out. Joab and Abishai, in verses 6 through 11, take them on and clean their clocks. Joab has this great line to Abishai, his brother, 
Be of good courage and let us play the man for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. I mean, it's pretty, he's a tough guy. He's a tough guy, but it's nice to see. Joab is one of those mixed bags, you know, you sort of think, he's a good soldier. He's a, he's a hard man, harder than David, but, uh, uh, but sometimes he's out there doing things that, uh, and you'll see some later today, uh, later this evening. Um, the Syrians get chased off. Uh, Joab beats one group of the Syrians and Abishai, the Ammonites, and so they're in flight. David and the Syrians regroup, and David chases them down and defeats them in the uh, latter part of chapter 10. So there's sort of a state of war with Ammon right now. Verse 1 of chapter 11 is where the Bathsheba incident begins. So I want you to know that the siege of, the siege of the Ammonite uh, kingdom is the cause of this event. Uh, so it plays, this particular war is what plays into the sin with Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, which is one of my favorite verses, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. Now, Reba is known today as Amon Jordan, the capital of Jordan, is Amon, about 40 miles from, really not that far from Jerusalem, you know, about 20 miles to the Jordan from Jerusalem and then 20 miles to Amman. And it's, it's just, over the, just over the hill. And uh, so, uh, you know, a couple days march, basically, uh, um, uh, for the troops. And so they're going up to lay siege to the, the, the royal city of the Ammonites. And the, and the, the writing of this is pointed. You, you, you cannot miss the instruction regarding sin and covering it up and repentance. I mean, there's just, there's some rich remarks, but David remained at Jerusalem. That was probably the first mistake. And you wouldn't think it was the first mistake, but it wasn't a mistake you could repent of, or it may be a mistake that if nothing happened, you would have noticed that sometimes you don't go into work that day. But sometimes we have, when we don't do what we normally would be doing, we find ourselves in situations we haven't learned to control. It happened late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. I mean, he's really taking it easy. Late in the afternoon, he'd getting up from a nap and was walking upon the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. That's all we need to know. She's in the altogether, and she's hot. The temptation comes on David at a time when he, as a warrior king, should have been at war. It lets you know that. It was the time when kings go forth to battle, and David didn't. Take Joab. And he's not ready for this. The temptation, free time, sex, and beauty. Those are the, because that's how it registers to him. She's naked. She's beautiful. What am I doing here again? <laughs> and this is where he, every, at every point, uh, when the Lord says in Corinthians that, for Paul, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. 
and he will give you a means of escape whereby you may be able to endure it. There are points of turning away David could have done. Yeah, uh, that he already has substantial wife status. You know, he's got lots of wives. But he sent and inquired about the woman. He pursues the thought. It wasn't just, oh, oops, I saw somebody in the tub. He said, well, what, what kind of tubs do they have? You can see them from room. Well, it's an ancient city and bathing on the roofs and so forth. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So he finds out. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. He cuts right to the chest. Boom, boom, boom. Now we don't know Bathsheba's opinion about all this. It could be all power. Remember, he is not suddenly besotted. Met her at three or five parties. Got really interested in her because she was interested in the same things. He was, no. He saw her naked and she was beautiful. This is all animal. And, and coveting your neighbor's wife, one of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Close enough, you can see the, the woman bathing and consequently, um, he, he is after one thing. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. He has the power and this is what probably, because things were amiss in David and the temptation arrived and he had the power to engage it. And sometimes we think that if I have the power, this is why TVs get stolen when the lights go out in New York City, because suddenly everybody has been given the power. Everyone has been given, I can't be caught. I, I, I have this within my ability to do. Too often, the things that are taboo for Christians, we structure a Christian environment, and that's probably decent and good to do, that we don't, we don't cross out into areas that, are, that are, are unfamiliar to us, which might be a wise thing to do, maybe sometimes unwise, but um, we have to... Uh, um, we have to recognize that even when we are outside of that pattern, um, we're going to be hit, inside or outside, we're going to be hit by temptations. We always have a means of escape, but we think if, if we've been given the opportunity, it's almost an innocence to take. David takes and just takes. He just finds out, asks who she is, sends a messenger, takes her away, sleeps with her, and gets her pregnant. Now, David has slipped into a, a, a separate, is a standard role that sin gets us into. Especially, especially embarrassing, socially embarrassing sin, a sin that will cause us to be looked on as less, if it were not. We think the sin is the horizontal problem. We think that it's the problem I have created. I've gotten somebody else's wife pregnant. So when you have a horizontal view of sin and you haven't been found out yet, the attempt in covering it up, there's, there's one way to cover it up if you have a vertical notion of sin. You go to the Lord and you admit it and you confess it and you forsake it and that's what you do. When it's horizontal, and the people, the other people are the problem. Them knowing is the problem. I can deceive other people. 
I can come up with justifications. I can talk, come up with talking about this. And that's what David does. He sends word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab, Uriah is off at the siege of Reba. Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people fared and how the war prospered. You could, you could hear the writer's cynicism. He's attempting to cover this up by a fake curiosity, um, uh, being the good king to Uriah. Uh, I'm going to set this up. It's going to cover itself up real naturally. I'll have Uriah in the town. I'll ask him some legitimate questions about how the war's going. I'll send him home to his wife. I'll give him a present. That'll be good. Uriah went out of the house, and there followed him a present from the king. Here, I'll be giving you some coasters. Mr. Coffee, here's, here's a present from your king. Thanks for serving. Now, go, go home to the old lady, knock boots, and you'll think you got her pregnant, and then I'm clear. That one. Simple. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Now, Uriah's not just Joe's soldier. He's one of the 30. He's one of the top soldiers. And if you're not familiar with the Hittites, this is the remnant of the Hittite Empire. The Hittites were destroyed in 1200 BC, a couple hundred years earlier. As a nation, they no longer existed. But you had remnant Hittites who were all over the place looking to serve in other armies because of that. So Uriah is, uh, the Hittites were in modern-day Turkey. Uh, and uh, they were descendants of... Uh, Canaan, uh, Sidon and Heth were the two sons of Canaan, and Sidon produced the Phoenicians, and Heth produced the Hittites, and and um, so it goes that that far back. But but um, so the Hittites are 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 men without countries. They're they're, and but he's a he's a loyal soldier. He did not go down to his house, which sort of ruins the plan. Your wife can't get fake pregnant if you don't go home and sleep with her. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said, Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, because Uriah's got integrity. The ark, and Israel, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. I mean... The thing that Uriah is unwilling to do, he's unwilling to compromise, unwilling to bend, is to enjoy what he has rights to because it's, it would be unbecoming of him as an officer. And this has got to, you'd think it's going to sting David. David, tell us how he felt, but it gets worse. And David said to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow I'll let you depart. So Uriah remained at Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. Okay, I'll compromise him. If I can compromise him to a certain extent, all this integrity will vanish. He will get, you know, plowed enough that he won't sleep on my porch. He'll go home to his wife. But he did not go down to his house. So what are you going to do? The, the attempt was to cover up the sin with good acts, so not only do you get shielded from discovery, you look even better. 
you know, you look, you look pretty good. This is the perfect justification, the perfect hiding, the perfect cover-up. And here's another case where you, you know, um, yeah, either way, you got to get Uriah. If you can't get Uriah to cover up the sin so that everything goes, goes back to normal, the only other way she can be pregnant legitimately is if she gets widowed really soon and I marry her. And then it'll just be, well, the baby came early. And it did the crassness of it. Verse 14, the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. This is like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That scene in Hamlet where Hamlet finds that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are carrying a letter to some king and uh, to kill Hamlet. So he changes the letter to kill Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. And they go off with the letter and they hand it over to the king and says, kill these two guys. And so he kills them. You know, that's a, it, it's, it's really crass to do, to make the guy carry his own death warrant. Send Uriah to the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. You have to have social innocence. The whole point is David is protecting his social, where things are, what people know. Because that's the only, in many people's sin, they think that the only thing is whether others know. They're following some modern idea that all sin is a social contract. Evil only exists in the social contract. That's why homosexuals want to get marriage rights and such. They want to legitimize everything, normalize, normalize everything, so that we won't look and feel so bad, because they think it's the opinion of the people that makes something evil. It's a, it's a bad place to get stuck. And not only do we try to justify and cover up by adding good things on top of trying to move things with good, fake good ideas, good, good deeds, we do it with bad as well. He plans to have the guy killed. So Joab makes the arrangements. It's not entirely clear whether it goes all according to that, because he does put Uriah with some valiant men. And it doesn't seem to have any evidence that anything other than normal war occurred, but Uriah is killed. And he sends a letter to David and says, yeah, send it, we'll send a message to the king, and, and um, he's going to get all upset about this, and he'll bring up the Abimelech son of uh, Jerubesheth, which is reference to uh, Judges 9, where Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, who is Gideon, um, is, has a millstone dropped on his head by a woman laying siege to him and doesn't want it to be known as being killed by a woman so he asks for his guard to kill him. We still know he was killed by a woman. Um, but he, Joab brings that up and says uh, and it's called Jerobesheth. Remember I mentioned last week how Mephibosheth used to be Merubael and Eshbael became Ishbosheth because they replaced the name of Baal with the word for shame. So Jerubbaal, uh, Gideon's name, uh, was changed to Jerubbesheth. So, but he says that when the kid gets angry and starts talking, giving you a tirade about this, just tell him, and Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Joab is really Machiavellian, I would say. He just says he'll drop the bomb, say that'll straighten things out. Anytime you think that things are going bad, just let him know Uriah is dead. The messenger goes and tells him that it doesn't go through that little scene. Joab just imagines that scene, and, but, it, but it lets you know what Joab's opinion of this is. This, um, 
this necessary military, I guess they're calling fragging, you're killing one of your own people somehow. Um, the messenger tells David that Uriah is dead. And David says, with a message to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack upon the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. Stuff happens. David has managed, by the death of Uriah, to make a widow out of the woman he got pregnant. His innocence is maintained by removing causality from himself. He didn't pull the trigger. He didn't kill Uriah directly. He didn't pay someone to kill Uriah directly. The sword falls on people, kind of. One, maybe another. Uh, We're just hoping for the best here. She mourns, Bathsheba mourns, and then goes to David and becomes his wife. And they have a baby boy, but in red, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the problem. This is not a horizontal problem. This is a vertical problem. It's the nature of all morality. It exists because there is a judgment above, not a judgment across. If judgment was across, all these little movements could maybe bear some fruit for us. We just would have to change the opinion of other people about what went on. But it's not. All morality is from above. This is that great story Nathan tells David. He reveals it to Nathan, what has gone on. There were two men of a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb. This is Yiddick Center violins playing in the background. Maybe a little PowerPoint presentation with a fuzzy little lamb on it. Which he brought, bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him, and with his children, let me add. And it used to eat of his morsel, and drink from his cup, and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. This is, this is sappy. But it was a, definitely an intimate connection between the, 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 this ewe lamb and the family and lived in. And, and they came a traveler to the rich man. He was unwilling to take one of his own flock who were, or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. David believes it's a real story. David wants to see punishment. You will find this in many guilty people of grave sins. They, they want to be considered moral. They want to still past moral judgments. I was telling a girl who had walked away from the Lord probably a couple years ago, I was talking to her and and uh, she was starting to make some moral judgment about somebody. I said, you may not do that. You have denied faith. You have denied Christianity. You've denied there's a God, there's a judgment. You have no ability to make a moral judgment about anyone. Don't expect me to listen to you making those. I can make them, you may not. Now she was she started to cry, which um, was probably good, because she knew it was true. She knew that 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 she really couldn't. She was a wise, and when she was a Christian, she was aware enough of those qualities, um, uh, you might say, of reason, that she really couldn't. She was she had really stripped herself of the right to make that moral judgment. Nathan accepts the moral judgment and says, "You are the man." 
Thus said the Lord of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. How similar this is to the first part on the, uh, uh, the temple building. Um, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I had been with you wherever you went. God comes into him in one case to produce great praise in giving David a sure house, a, 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 a throne that would last forever. And David, greatly blessed by it, here, I did this for you, and your master's wives to your bosom. So he got Saul's wives added to his own harem. We I don't know how many we added up in the harem, I, the, 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 the list there. The ones listed are on the, on the family tree. But he gets many other wives, and he gets many concubines, and he gets Saul's wives too. And gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. David's problem was not that he wanted women. He had women. And he could have had more than he had gotten already. God would have provided them. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord? David's broken three of the Ten Commandments and three of the biggies. Um, murder and adultery and uh, coveting your neighbor's wife. And the problem is largely the, um, it, it, it's more in that neighbor's wife problem um, because he could have had in terms, it wasn't the, you might say, the ickiness of the sensuality of the sin. It's not that the Bible has a dim view of the sensuality David was driven by. He saw the woman naked. She was very beautiful. He got fixated on it. And the problem was there was a line there called, she's married. She's married. You have despised the word of the Lord. And it really came down to David, once he had sinned, he felt that the thing violated was the horizontal problem. And he set a path to hide the horizontal problem. But it's despising the word of the Lord. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. And that's what it comes down to. When, we, when we're dealing with sin in friends or others to ourselves, uh, we have to know where guilt comes from. Uh, it lets us know that godly grief leads to repentance. Man's grief leads to death. And too often when we not only think ourselves that our own sins are only social, and if, you know, we apologize and make things right, and never make it right with God, we think that that took care of it. But that's man's grief, man's guilt, man's... Uh, trying to straighten out the players on the chessboard so that nobody is offended, trying to make things right, either by, by justifying or covering up or even making it right by confessing it, thinking that took care of it. But we've despised the Lord. The, the judge of sin is not the other person. I didn't, if I sin against my wife, I didn't break some rule Leslie has about something. You know, she's, she doesn't say... You shall have no, um, you shall not bear false witness in the kitchen. And I lied to her in the kitchen. 
I said, oh dear, better apologize to Leslie because she has this rule about lying in the kitchen. That's the old, but she's not the moral. She's just the object of my immorality. God said, you shall not bear false witness. God says you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And this curse is put upon David that his own wives are going to be taken from before his eyes and somebody, he didn't say who, a neighbor, is going to sleep with them in the sight of all Israel. It's going to be public. You're going to be shamed this way. It is fulfilled in 2 Samuel 16. We'll get to that next week. David said, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord forgives, but the child's going to die. I've inserted Psalm 51. I'm going to just go through it quickly because we're running out of time. But Psalm 51 is David's penitential psalm in response to this sin. When David the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. The wonderful things in it. Um, but what I was just speaking of, verse 4. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Hold it, Uriah is dead on the field of battle. He's been cuckolded by the king. God is some other man's wife pregnant. What do you do? No, the sin is against God. That's, that's the only place the rule exists. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. And the lawgiver is who you sin against. Other people are merely the victims. We cannot afford to keep horizontal thinking about our errors of judgment, our, our misbehavior. All we've done, because if I sin, say, say I sinned against my wife and lied in the kitchen, and I knew that I'd lied to God and I, before God, and so I confess it to God and I tell my wife, uh, I lied to you, I'm sorry I lied to you, I confessed it to God and he's forgiven me. And she says, well, there's no way I'm ever going to forgive you. Do I go on my way without any joy in my life and don't feel any... No, I've been forgiven by the person against who the sin really existed. I might have an awkwardness socially with my wife because she won't forgive, but that's not my moral problem anymore. It's just a sad social circumstance. But it, the sin is gone. The sin is gone. David accepts it. He says, Thou art justified in thy sentence and blameless in thy judgment. Well, the things he desires out of you see that the in the poetry of David this great gift for uh, cutting to it, where it I mean, he he knows how to examine himself. He says, "I behold, verse six, thou desirest truth in the inward being; therefore, teach me wisdom in my secret heart." When you get down to it, with something like this simple thing. Are you functioning horizontally or vertically? Are you functioning where sin really exists or where sin doesn't exist? And if you're functioning wrong, you're going to be doing all sorts of silly things and maybe even greater evil to try to cover up your evil. You can get it right immediately if you think vertically and you deal with God. That's the truth. And God desires truth in our inward being. He wants us to view the universe the way he views the universe. He wants us to view it the way he has made it to be. We need to, that consequently, be taught wisdom. That's a, a necessary desire. If I know truth is where I should be, and these problems won't occur if I, down to my center, know the truth, then wisdom must be something I am a student of. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And then he says a bunch of things got, you know, in this cleansing. The cleansing is not merely, please forgive, please, 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 I'm sorry. It's cleanse me, but then says, fill me with joy and gladness. Let the bones which thou hast broken rejoice. Um, verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. He's the, 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 the nature of, of repentance is so abject, broken, and real that it knows what it's grasping for from God. It wants to be filled with joy. It wants to be cleaned in the heart. It doesn't want to be sent away from the presence of the Lord. It wants to maintain or regain the joy of salvation in your life. You know, you, 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 it's like the mirror got wiped clean. You know exactly what you're looking at. You know exactly what you're talking about because you're no longer saying, okay, this is my public face that I'm showing to the horizontal public who's judging me or not judging me. I am completely exposed before the presence of the Lord. If those things happen, then I will teach transgressors thy ways. This is a wonderful aspect of this story. Because, oh, what an icky thing to put in the middle of David's life. You know, David did it. But, my gosh, chapters of this. Uh, rather, rather tawdry um, Greek tragedy going on here in David's life. Well, David is... Uh, then ready. He does not want to give, it says earlier, um, verse 16, Thou hast no delight in sacrifice, were I to give a burnt offering, thou wouldst not be pleased. What you really want, verse 17, the acceptable sac uh, sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. We, when we get a horizontal view, even when it seems to be sorry, if it's horizontal, it's the sorry of embarrassment, um, contrition. It, it, it seems to move toward you when the person is found out to be in sin. It's like they're trying to get you to think better of them. I'm really sorry. Uh, we're not powerful enough in their life to break their spirit. We're not powerful enough to break their inner bones uh, spiritually. God wants us, when we finally realize we stand before God with our sins, that's who breaks us, rather than, and the humility present there is palatable. Once that's done, then thou will delight in right sacrifices. Piety then can be trusted. But if a person starts, you know, going to church, you know, and being all, you know, trying to, what they're trying to do is they're trying to do that the, you know, cover up the sin with a group of pious actions. You know, it's do enough of that and people will think I'm okay or not as bad. Basically what happens here, the rest of this, the rest of this uh, chapter, uh, the child gets sick a few days later, lingers for seven days. David petitions the Lord and um, the child dies. It's, uh, and the, and the, Servants are worried about David. They think he might kill himself if he finds out the kid's dead. David figures it out. Gets up, washes, eats a meal, goes and uh, worships the Lord. 
I got it in the wrong order. He washed, changes his clothes, then he goes worships, then he eats. And they're weirded out by that. David's comment when they go, well, why did you, after you found out the kid was dead, I would thought then you would be in a state. Well, no. He says, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord would be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Well, it's, a, it's a poignant thing. He knew that the, the judgments of God were just. He said that in his, his confession. Thou, thou art justified in thy sentence and blameless in thy judgment. He accepted that God would take the life of the child. The prophet told him God would take the life of the child. But you, you know something of David's belief about God. God could have an intention that this is going to be the case, but he thought reasonably in his view of God that seven days prostration before the Lord, pleading with God, supplicating, God might change. He believed in a God who could change. God doesn't. The child dies. But David believed that. He didn't, th- and he didn't think less. He gets up and he worships. You know, he's fully accepted the state as is, but God's mercy can be extended even further. He gave great mercy to David himself. He would not die. He already passed that judgment on himself. The man who does this thing deserves to die. You know, but he doesn't die, and the child dies. Um, Bathsheba is, of course, sad. He sleeps with her. She gets preggers again and has Solomon, named Jedediah by Nathan, which means beloved of the Lord, for somehow the Lord loves Solomon. It just says that, that the Lord loved him. Um, Joab is still at Ramah. The city is starting to fall. Joab says, hey, we've got the city. Why don't you come on down here and lead the final charge, David? You've been at home getting in trouble, having your officers killed. I think maybe you ought to come down here. And Joab says, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. I mean, David is surrounded sometimes by bad men who are better than he. Sometimes by great men that are better than he, like Uriah. Joab's a bad man, who in many ways is better than David in places. And there's that loyalty and humility. David goes down and takes the city and uh, um, takes the people into tributary and slavery state. Well, that is the end of the chapter. But the, probably the key thing that, that I would have you think about is this whole idea of what, how does it change our movement? How rapidly do we fall to our knees and confess when we think where sin really is a violation? When I have sinned, what do I really turn my sights to to deal with? Do I try to start shoring up all the social vulnerabilities that I think are going to destroy me, or do I repent? It's a vertical or horizontal issue. Let's thank God. Dear Lord, thank you very much for this lesson from David's life that goes on. And we'd ask that you would bless us in our own looking at our lives, that we might not be caught up in just the social adjustments that we feel we can make to hide our sins. We'd ask that we would always stand before you as the Lord of the earth. In your son's name, amen.